You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. To say this everywhere I go. Um, never thought I was going to live in the U.S., so I never thought of like maybe using a different name. So uh, I'm uh, the, the interim pastor here. Hopefully this week uh, I will either be voted away or voted on. Um, but so far, I'm the interim pastor at New City, and it's a joy to be here with you guys. And uh, we're going to uh, start a new series in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up, and we're going to spend some time giving a little bit of an intro to the book, and also uh, in the first 11 chapters of the, of the book. And just because it's the, the first sermon of a, of a bigger series, we're probably going to be here a little bit, um, a while, we, we don't know exactly how long, but because it's the foundation of what we're going to see uh, later in the book, uh, we're going to take some time to learn a few things about the book and some uh, important concepts that are going to be repeated throughout the book. So it might, you might get a little bit of a, uh, a class feeling initially, hopefully not too much, but uh, we're going to be using scripture a lot. And um, with that, let me go ahead and pray for all of us and start with our text, which is going to be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for our, our time together. Thank you for the freedom that we have to gather as Christians, uh, to open your word, uh, to learn from it, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it. Uh, thank you. It is a privilege that we don't take for granted, and we pray that you would allow us to be shaped by the proclamation of your word. I pray that your gospel would be made clear and that your name would be glorified. In, in our midst, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So uh, our text says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So before we uh, dive in and see what God has for us through this text, uh, just briefly, uh, this is a book that, different from what we've seen in previous series, is not a letter to a church. It's actually a narrative. It's, it's, it's considered a historical narrative. It, it actually tells the, uh, the events that happen uh, in the, the birthing of the church. This book was written between 35 and 60 AD. We don't know exactly when. Uh, it was, uh, as most of the New Testament, written in, in Greek. And the setting is the first century Roman Empire. Uh, everywhere this book was written uh, or alludes about different places in the first century Roman Empire. And the author is Luke. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke is a physician. He is a doctor. And we know this because Paul himself calls him the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. Uh, he is also a close companion of Paul. He's mentioned several times by Paul as his fellow laborer or brother in, in Christ. Uh, he is also the only writer in the entire Bible that is not a Jew. So the entire Bible has been, every book in the Bible has been written by a Hebrew or a Jew. Luke is the only one who, ha, who is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. People believe that he was a Greek or a Hellenist Jew, but he is a Gentile. And similarly, this book was uh, addressed or the audience or the purpose of this book was to, to uh, tell the story of Jesus to another Gentile, which is uh, Theophilus. Um, it's a historical narrative. Uh, sorry, by the way. So the way we know that he was not, or the look that he was not, was not a Jew is because Paul in Colossians 4 lists the people that are what he calls of the circumcision or Jews that were with him, and Paul doesn't make the list. And on the same chapter, Paul moves on to talk about Luke, but he didn't make it to the first uh, list of the, the people from the circumcision that work with them. And you can read uh, about this in Colossians chapter 4. The book of Acts is the second volume of uh, Luke. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if we read Luke chapter 1, we will see that it is also addressed to this person named Theophilus. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to them have delivered them to us. So what, what Luke is saying is that he was not an eyewitness of at least the gospel, because he says that he was not the eyewitness, that the eyewitnesses delivered this information to Luke. Verse 3 says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And the reason why uh, we believe he is uh, someone with higher ranking authority or, or, or of importance is because uh, Luke uses this language of most excellent. And verse 4 says that you may have certainly concerning, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the, uh, the way that Luke and then volume 2 Acts is uh, written is a little bit um, as an, uh, an apologetic book. He wants Theophilus to have certainty of what he's being taught 
and, and what he knows about Jesus in Luke and then the church in the book of Acts. We don't know for certain who is uh, Theophilus. I, I mentioned that already. And um, it is important for us to understand that this is one of the books that appeals most to us as non-Jews. Maybe some of you are Jews, but most of us are Gentiles, not Jews. And this is important because this is a book that actually ties Jesus' connection to the rest of the world. It shows how significant the, the gospel or the life of Jesus is to people who are not Jews. And that is an important uh, aspect that we need to take into consideration. Why is the book of Acts important? Um, if you notice, when we read it, the first two verses of this uh, Acts 1 actually says that the Gospels, and Luke is referring mostly to his Gospel, ends when Jesus leaves. And this is the continuation. The book of Acts begins when Jesus leaves. So in a, little, in a way, the book of Acts is sort of a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. This book, the book of Acts, is so important to us that some theologians actually agree that without the book of Acts, we would not have the correct context for all the letters. We wouldn't know how Ephesus came about. We wouldn't know how uh, Antioch came about or, or uh, all the other churches. We also wouldn't know fully or, or as well as we know who Paul is or was. This is the book that actually tells us what happens with Paul, how Paul came into the, the, the whole 12 dynamic of the apostles. We wouldn't know how the gospel ended up in far places like Rome or Athens. We wouldn't know how that happened or who did it. And without the book of Acts, the, the epistles would just be letters to some unknown churches. We wouldn't really have a lot of, uh, of knowing about that. But the book of Acts actually ties everything, ties the life of Jesus to all these letters of this church or to these churches, and it is important for us today. So this is a book that, that is descriptive, is historical, um, and it's going to show us how God continues to move in miraculous way, even when Jesus left. So the Gospels, the book of Luke, are Jesus's or is Jesus's ministry and blessing to the people around him. But the book of Acts is the church's ministry and blessing to the people around him through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. For us, it is something that we continue to see today. The book of Acts has 28 chapters, and a lot of people say we are still living the 29th chapter because Jesus's command was for us to go to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel to all nations. And believe it or not, we have not finished. We are in 2023, and there are still places in this world that do not have the gospel. So the book of Acts is not necessarily closing, and I say this because we believe that the canon of Scripture has been closed. So the story continues. We are part of the story of the development of the church until we finish taking the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth. The last element on why this is such an important book uh, is because there is this relationship between the gospel 
and works that is a little bit of attention in Scripture. And the book of Acts is actually a demonstration or sort of captures that. The book of Acts is the continuation of the Gospels. We see what Jesus did for us, his life, his death, his, his resurrection. And the book of Acts is, in a way, the consequence of that. Is that what, what happens after you have an encounter with Jesus? Then the book of Acts happens. The gospel takes effect. The gospel produces fruit. And that is what happens. And in fact, if you read the Bible, you're going to see that the New Testament is the first four books that are called the Gospels, that are the life of Jesus, and the immediate next book is the book of Acts, which is, again, a consequence of what we do when we receive the Gospel. The people who received the Gospel, the people who witnessed Jesus, the people who experienced and touched Jesus, those people then did the same thing to others. They were moved to also preach the gospel. They were moved to also uh, perform miracles. They were moved to go to other cities to feed uh, the needy, to heal uh, the sick, to care for people, and to proclaim the good news to everyone. So some scholars say that the book of Acts is the fruit of the gospels. And that is important for us as well. Because as a church, that's what we believe. We believe that we, we don't only proclaim the gospel because it's a good message, but it also carries consequences. We can't just assume or consume the message and do nothing about it. If we consume the message, the message will propel us to do something about it. And that's why this book is so important, because it portrays that. But for today, for us, for New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia in 2023, what does this mean for us today? Uh, I want to start by pointing out that and I've said this many times, I grew up Pentecostal, so I've read Acts 1 and mostly Acts 2 many times and rarely ever heard about something that Jesus did in this, in this, in this part. And if you noticed, Jesus came back to life. He resurrected. He presented himself alive to his disciples after his sufferings by many proofs. He proved that it was him because they didn't believe that it was actually Jesus. And some of us don't remember that he appeared and he stayed for 40 days with them. So Jesus saw the need of resurrecting, and he said, I still need to do something. We, we usually don't remember those 40 days. We usually sort of think that he resurrected, and then boom, he, he was lifted up, and that's it. But no, Jesus had something else to do. He came back to life presented himself to the apostles, and he spent a month and 10 days with them. And what is it that he do? He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And I've never heard that before. Like, I've read it, but it's almost like you gloss over it, and then you immediately go to the Spirit. And it's okay. It is an emphasis. But why did Jesus have this need to come back for 40 days, spend time with his disciples, and teach them about the kingdom of God? And I understand, if you've been a Christian for a long time, the topic of the kingdom of God is confusing. I still remember that growing up, there was all these arguments, and people would, nobody could ever tell me what the kingdom of God is. 
And I can ask you right now, raise your hand and tell me, define the kingdom of God. And everyone's like, uh, the church, uh, Israel. It's just like all these ideas that are complicated. And in a way, there's, I want to bring, bring some clarification. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to think that I'm going to do a better job than all the other people who have tried to explain it to me, and I didn't understand it. But there's basically two ways to see the kingdom of God. There's a really simplistic one, which I believe is very useful, and that's the one that we should remember. And then there's the, the theologically complicated aspect of the kingdom of God. So simply put, uh, there's a, a Spanish theologian, his name is Samuel Vila, and he actually says the kingdom of God is any sphere or this sphere in which God reigns. That is the kingdom of God. God is a king. Wherever he reigns, that is the kingdom of God. He also says that it's the place in which his will is respected and fulfilled. There's another theologian that says it even in a smaller way. Pablo Deiro says the kingdom of God is where God governs. So that way, that's a simple definition that is true and that we can remember. Now, this could be applied in many different ways, and this is where it gets theologically complicated. There are people who see the kingdom of God chronologically developed, so the paradise was the kingdom of God, then Israel's kingdom was the kingdom of God, then the prophesied kingdom of David was also the kingdom of God, then the inaugurated kingdom of Jesus' first coming was also the kingdom of God, and then the kingdom of salvation and the gospel is also the kingdom of God, and then there's the glorious kingdom of the second coming and the millennium that is also the kingdom of God, and then the eternal kingdom of God, which is the final one. You see why it's complicated? Because God has reigned throughout history at different places, and all of those are kingdoms of gods. And there are references in, in the scripture that are very specific to moments of the kingdom of God that could be applied to that. But I believe that Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God, to his disciples, is a reference of who he is, of, of the gospel, of salvation, of, of Jesus now coming to be the king of people's lives by paying the price for their sins. And we see this because this was the same message that Jesus preached when he came, when he appeared on earth. When Jesus was incarnated and began his ministry, Jesus also proclaimed the kingdom of God. Remember, if you've read the Gospels, you will hear and read references or statements like, like repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus saying that. He would also say the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what, what kingdom is he referring to? He's, just come, he's referring to himself. He's referring to the gospel. He's referring to salvation. He's referring to the fact that God is coming to reign on our hearts. So that is the definition or the concept that we're going to utilize to talk about the kingdom of God. And I want to make sure we understand Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples talking about this new kingdom that they were supposed to expand. Jesus is talking about establishing his own reign, his own rule, Jesus' rule, King Jesus' rule in people's hearts throughout the earth. And this is important. And then Luke captures something really funny. is that Jesus came, comes back 
spends an, an extra month with his disciples after he resurrected. Remember, Jesus' body is different. They actually couldn't recognize him. He, he had a glorified body. He had the, the pierced, or how do you call it, the, the, the scars in his hands. He, but at the same time, he could disappear and, and, and basically pass through walls. So they were a little confused. But after the 40th day, I'm pretty sure they kind of got used to it and, and recognized them. And Jesus is talking to them about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, the, 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 the disciples couldn't understand what he was saying. Look at what they asked him. So, verse 6, when they had come together, other translations says that they sat down to eat. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were dealing with the exact same confusion that we are dealing with. They could not process a different kingdom than the kingdom that they saw in, in, in history, the kingdom to Israel. The Jews believed that the promise for the Davidic kingdom was about the Jews. That every prophet that talked about the kingdom of God or the future kingdom of God or the glorious kingdom of God, they were talking about Israel. But Jesus was not talking about that anymore. I'm pretty sure that Jesus were mentioning things and they were like, well, what about us? You're talking about all these other people that we don't even know. What, why are you talking about Samaritans? And Jesus responds to them and he says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he describes this new kingdom. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Yes, it started in Jerusalem. It will also go to Judea, but now it's also going to go to more uncomfortable places like Samaria and the end of the earth. So Jesus is basically saying, get ready, this is going to get big. This is going to include uncomfortable places for you. And he tells them, you're going to be my witness. You're going to take this everywhere. This is also called the Great Commission of the Book of Acts. Because almost all the other Gospels have, have a sort of Great Commission or a Great Commission, and all of them include all the nations. The only Gospel that do not, doesn't have this is, is the Gospel of John. But Matthew 28 ends by saying, Go therefore and make disciples where? To all nations. Mark 16 says, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. And then Luke 24 actually says, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Every single commission of Jesus to his disciples included all nations. The gospel, the kingdom of God in people's lives includes all nations. Jesus gave them a commission, a mission that applies to us today. Our mission is still alive because our king is still alive. And this king is going to be with us. He will be with us until the end of the age. He will be with us forever until our mission is accomplished. And then he will come back. That's what the, that's what the angels told the disciples. They were looking up, and then the two, two angels appeared. 
and they, they say, what are, you, what are you waiting for? What are you looking at? He's going to come back. This king, Jesus, will come back, but it gets better. He didn't just say, wash the dishes, I'll be right back, which is what we tell our kids. He didn't just say that. He gave us one of the hardest and most critical missions, but he said, and I will be with you. And even better, I have something for you to give. And this is where we're going to spend the m- most of our time. We're going to develop this, pro- this uh, concept of the Holy Spirit, not concept, but we're going to talk about, uh, about the Holy Spirit a little more. And there's so much to talk about about the Holy Spirit. But this is what Jesus wanted us to utilize to proclaim the kingdom, to take the kingdom, to actually carry out our mission, use the Holy Spirit. He calls it the promise of the Father. And then the only command we found in these first 11 verses is this. Do not depart from Jerusalem. Wait. That was the only command that Jesus gave his disciples in this verse. Verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So in a nutshell, what I want to say today is that Jesus is telling us, as he told his disciples, don't do anything until you have the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is where I want to spend most of our time. Jesus is very clear about our mission or commission to take the kingdom of God everywhere. But he's also clear, not only from this, and we will see it in a moment, from, a, from different places, that we cannot do this on our own. Everything that God commanded us to do, Jesus' work on, for us on this earth, is impossible to do, humanly speaking. We need the Holy Spirit. And to be honest, even though we're Trinitarians, that is the person of the Trinity that we least talk about, the Holy Spirit. But Luke emphasizes how important it is and how critical it is for us as Christians. It is so important, the Holy Spirit is so important that the Holy Spirit played a key role in Jesus' life. And this is another thing that we usually don't hear. We talk about Jesus died and Jesus was born and Jesus carried out miracles. But think about this. How did Jesus come about to this earth? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is basically Jesus' dad in a way. I'm, I'm, I'm not hoping I'm not saying heresies. But I'm, I'm implying that the Holy Spirit is the one that put the seed on Mary. Right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So from the get-go, from the first time, before Jesus even stepped a foot on earth, the Holy Spirit gave life to Jesus. Then, before he began his ministry, Jesus was baptized. And who was present? Not just the Father, 
The Holy Spirit was present there. And if you read Luke chapter 1, chapter 4 says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. This is right after he was baptized and was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit gives life to Jesus, baptizes Jesus, leads Jesus to the desert. And when Jesus comes back victorious from the temptations of Satan in the, in, in the 40 days in the desert, guess what Luke says in chapter, 14 of, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and, re- and a report about him went out uh, throughout all the surrounding counties. How did he return? In the power of the Spirit. Jesus' ministry was done by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' activities were done by the Holy Spirit as well. Matthew 12, 28 says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is acknowledging that everything he's doing is not only because he is God, even though he is. It's also because of the Spirit. Jesus needed the Spirit. Look, in, 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 the first verse, in, in the first verses that we just read, actually says that Jesus gave commands to his disciples through the Holy Spirit. And lastly, who raised Jesus from the dead? Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Through his spirit... Who dwells in you. From beginning to end, the Holy Spirit has played a part in everything we see Jesus do. His birth, his life, his ministry, his, his death, his resurrection, and now he leaves and he tells us, that, th- that person that was helping me, guess what? I'm going to leave him for you too. And that is incredible. That is incredible. Jesus is commanding his disciples to do what he did. In a way, he's saying, make sure that you do this mission with the Holy Spirit, not alone. We need the Holy Spirit to proclaim and spread the kingdom of God on this earth. We cannot do this We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. I I told you at the beginning that we were going to set the foundation of what the book of Acts was going to look like later. And this is something we're going to continue to see. Everything that we see in the book of Acts is not a bunch of amazing guys killing it because they're type A, and because they're so well organized, and because they went through the best academic theological schools and had, no. What we're going to see is the Holy Spirit utilizing flawed people because they used him. They used the Holy Spirit. And because they did, they obeyed Jesus. They waited for the Holy Spirit. They didn't see Jesus go, and then somebody said, all right, let's create the committees, let's do the things and the trainings, let's get to work, people. That's not what they did. Jesus left, and they waited. And we'll see in a few more 
chapters, what happened? How the gospel burst out of the seams because of the Holy Spirit in filling and baptizing these people. But I, I just walked through how Jesus used the Holy Spirit. But let me just give us a little bit of a, I have 14 different things, and this is not an exhaustive list. There's more. But these are some of the things that the Spirit will do for us. These are helps and blessings that we have. If you're a believer, you have them that Jesus will do for us through the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit will do for us. Number one, it's interesting that the name given by Jesus to the Holy Spirit is helper. And this is not, this is not anything new. This is not a translation. This is really literally the, the name that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit. If you read John chapter 14, 15, and 16, that is the name that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit, the helper. He says, the helper will do this. The helper will, will help you. And it's, it's to the point that in, in chapter 16 of verse, uh, in John, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it is better for us to have the Holy Spirit right now than to have actually Jesus in front of us. These are Jesus' words. Maybe some of us are more romantic and, and, and maybe you've, you've said, I wish I could just have Jesus in front of me and hug him and see him and eat with him. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's something better than that. It's that I will send the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to, of sin to the whole world. The Holy Spirit will guide us to all truth. The Holy Spirit will illuminate us. The Holy Spirit will give us the words to use when we proclaim the gospel. Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 13, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will remind us Jesus' words. The Holy Spirit will live inside of us. The Holy Spirit will sanctify us, make us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit will seal us as God's children. The Holy Spirit, Spirit will guarantee our salvation. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts like teaching, faith, healing, discernment, proclaiming the gospel, evangelism, all kinds of ministries and, and gifts. The Holy Spirit will give us his fruit. He will make us more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more kind, all of these things. And the Holy Spirit will guide us to different places. So in short, we need the Holy Spirit in order to spread the kingdom of God on this earth. We need the Holy Spirit in order to do ministry in Manassas, Virginia today. We cannot do life Ministry, the Christian thing, without the Holy Spirit, and it is everything that we need has been already given, been given to us. But if we're honest, in some of our circles, especially the Reformed or Baptist circles, we have a tendency to have a different trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And we're at, we're, we're, we're very suspicious of anything that has to do with the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit immediately makes people uncomfortable. 
And I understand, I've been there, I've seen the misuses and the abuses, but we cannot ignore the Holy Spirit. If we're fully Trinitarian, we have to talk about the Holy Spirit, we have to use the Holy Spirit, we have to use the Helper. And I believe that I am guilty of ignoring the Holy Spirit. And in fact, this is something that happened, and Paul calls it out. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, do not quench the Spirit. So it is possible to quench the Spirit. And he gives us one example of how people quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But what? Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Then Paul says it again in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of the redemption. And then the Israelites are, are um, ¿cómo se dice regañar? Called out, corrected, reprimanded. And they are, this is what they say, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. And I know we might have different views on the Holy Spirit or positions. But I love what, and I highly recommend this, this, uh, this, this guy. His, his name is Sam Storms. He says this, and I, I believe this is our challenge for today. He says, we quench the Spirit anytime we rely on any resource other than the Holy Spirit for anything we do in life and ministry. Any attempt to conjure up hope apart from that power, which is the Spirit, is to quench Him. Any attempt to preserve or persevere in ministry and remain patient with joy by any other means than the Spirit is to quench Him. Any effort or strategy to carry out pastoral ministry or the other than through his energy that he powerfully works within me is to quench the Spirit. Any attempt to resolve to carry out some good work of faith through a power other than the Spirit is to quench him. And then he, he talks about grieving the Spirit. And he says, we grieve the Spirit whenever we diminish his personality and speak of him as if he were only an abstract power or a source of divine energy. There are times when the precious gifts, uh, the precious Spirit of God is treated as if he were no more than an ethereal energy, the divine equivalent to an electric current. Stick your finger of faith into the socket of his anointing presence and you will experience a spiritual shock of biblical proportions. The shameless mechanical manipulation and virtual depersonalizing of the Spirit has frightened many evangelicals and made them understandably skeptical of any claims to miraculous activity. In view of such patterns of ministry, any talk of experiencing the Spirit is summarily dismissed as dishonoring to his exalted status as God and a failure to embrace his sovereignty over us rather than us, ours over him. We talked about rest last week, and I believe that as a church, we need to learn to set new patterns, including me, everyone. How can we, as a church, move in a different way than previously? What if, as a church, instead of pursuing the next big thing, which we talked about last time, 
instead of trying to be the next elevation or the next Hillsong or the next whatever, or the example for everyone else to follow, what if we're just faithful? What if we just wait? What if we just rest? What if we truly rely on the Holy Spirit? What if we actually do things slower, more prayerfully, utilizing the help of the Holy Spirit? How can us, how can we, New City Fellowship, utilize the Holy Spirit today as a church? We have a helper. We would be foolish not to do it. We need to find ways to avoid quenching the Spirit. And I want to suggest a few when I'm done. We need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that, the, that we, we're already accepted. We need to remember that we haven't given the Spirit. The helper is for us regardless of how you behave, regardless of who you are right now or what you're struggling with. The Holy Spirit is with you. He is your guarantee. The gospel is something that frees us and gives us peace. Let's do ministry like that. Let's practice our spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, reading the word, meditating in the word, solitude, silence, both corporately and individually. Let's have faith. Let's be brave. Let's expect God to show up like, kid, like a child. Let's take steps of faith. Let's spend more time with him rather than doing for him. I believe we have been doing it. I believe that the last year is an entire miracle. I believe the fact that we're here is a miracle. And I believe that this is how we're going to continue. Maybe in a slow pace, but in a faithful pace. And honestly, we don't know. We're about to flip the page and we'll see how thousands of people receive Jesus out of nowhere just because of the Holy Spirit. So let's take this help that has been offered to us. Let's, let's move in this help that has been offered to us. Let's, let's not uh, refrain or, or be too careful as to ignore or quench the Holy Spirit. He is a person. He is part of the Trinity. He is here for us. He wants to empower us to be his witnesses everywhere. So I want to challenge us all to take the risk of being rejected and mocked by expanding the kingdom of, God, kingdom of God. We are still in the, in the 29th chapter of Acts. Let's continue writing this story. I mean, I just want to finish by saying that if you are a believer, this has already been given to you. The, 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 the Holy Spirit is within you, lives within you, indwells you. It's available to you. It's your helper. Use it. And if you're not a believer, I want to tell you this Holy Spirit that the Christians have, Christians have, to help us is available to you too. And you can come and you don't have to do your life alone. You can get supernatural help. For real. So if you're not a believer, I want to invite you to come and make Jesus your king. Come and be a part of the kingdom of God. And repent from living your life in your own terms and surrender your life to Jesus and give yourself wholly to him and receive this new life 
and this gift of the Holy Spirit. He died on the cross for us. He has forgiven our sins, and he wants to offer eternal and full life to all of us. So let's, let's pray and ask Jesus to help us, ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Dear God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Dear God, thank you for being such a good father who loves us and who not only gave us something to do, but also gave us the best possible way to do it. The tools, the person to do it, the helper. Lord, I pray that as a church, as, as individuals, we would be more aware of your presence. Be more aware of the Holy Spirit. Ask for help more often. Rely on the Holy Spirit and not our understanding. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and not our own resources. Lord, I pray that you will help us as a church. Be a church that functions and lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And every week we respond tangibly to receiving God's word by celebrating communion. Uh, we do this together as a family, uh, as a way to remember what Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. So if you're a follower of Christ, I would like to invite you to join us. And as you come, take a piece of the bread and one of the cups and remember that Jesus' body was crushed for us, that he suffered in our place, that our sins have been paid because he was nailed to that cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer that, like that. And as you drink the cup, we remember that his blood cleanses, that his blood has given us access to his presence, and that he has paid the price for us to be with him forever. And that through his blood, we are a new creation as well. If you're not a believer, I would like to uh, ask you not to participate. This is a public proclamation of uh, your faith in Christ, but rather take the time to consider what was preached and Maybe give your life to Jesus as your king. With this, we remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, uh, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may come forward.